Uh, now, I have to preface today's sermon um, with a bit of a confession that, that I, struggle to, I struggle to put into practice what I'm about to preach to you. Now, that is true of virtually everything that I preach, but it is especially true of what we're talking about today. I, I really struggle with putting, putting proper boundaries around my work and finding balance in my life when it comes to work. I just do. And so I need you to know, just for the sake of my own integrity, that as I preach this message today, I am not preaching this message as an expert in any regard. I am preaching this as a fellow person who is on this journey of trying to wrap my mind around this truth that God calls us to rest, whether we want to or not. And I am someone who, like you, I suppose, is trying to figure out how to put boundaries around work and set limits on their labor. Here's the big idea I want you to walk out with this morning. If you, if, you, if you get anything out of today, I want you to get this. So you might want to write this down. You are free to find margin. You are free to find margin. Uh, what is margin? Uh, it, it's free space. It's, it's empty space. So what I mean by that is that you are free, if you're here as a follower of Jesus, you are free to, to make space in your life for something other than labor to make space in your life for something other than labor. And you're also free to believe that if you cease from your work, whatever your work is, you are free to believe that that does not make you lazy. It doesn't mean you lack hustle. But what it means is that you are, you are walking in a certain level of spiritual wisdom, of earthly maturity, and you are investing in your, in your future ability to work well. You are free to find margin. Now, as we close out this series, More to Mondays, where we've been applying our faith to our work, um, I find it important to have this discussion, not just because this is something that I wrestle with, but it's because something I know that you wrestle with too. It's important for us to have this discussion for, for primarily two reasons. Number one, God commands it, and our current context and our current culture really needs it. First, let's start with God's command. If you grew up in the church, you know how, how the story of creation begins. God works, he labors for six days, and then at the end of six days, what does he do? He rests. He, another word for rest is Sabbath, God's Sabbaths. And then he, he codifies that rhythm of work and rest in the commandments where he says, look, if you're a member of my family, um, my rhythm of work is your rhythm of work. You are to mimic me in how you live. And so I, I created and I created and I created and then I rested. And so if you're a member of my family, what do I want you to do? I want you to create and create and create and create and then I want you to rest. And so the primary reason we have to have this discussion is because God commands us to this task and he calls us on a regular basis to this discussion that we are to have his same rhythm of work and rest. So it's a, it's a part of being faithful as his people to talk about this. But also, I believe that, that we are in a day and age where it is perhaps more difficult than ever for us to find rest from our labor this is particularly true in the United States, in the Western world, in our context, where all of the statistics tell us that people are, are working more than they've ever worked for less reward and deeper dissatisfaction. Uh, there's a famous um, 
sociologist named Samuel P. Huntington, who was at Harvard University, and before he died, um, he, he wrote uh, this book about the American worker in, in about 2003, so about 15, 16 years ago, that's kind of uh, considered a seminal work in this understanding of, of labor and the Western world. And th these are some words he wrote 15 years ago, and they're even more true now. Samuel Huntington, he says this, that Americans, he's looking at the data, Americans work longer hours, they have shorter vacations, they get less in unemployment, less in disability, less in retirement benefits, and they retire later than people in every other comparably rich society. And in the last 15 years, that gap between us and everybody else and how much we work and how little we get in return comparably, that gap has only grown. Now, if you read some other really smart people on this subject of why we are working more and more and more, they say that there's four main factors that play into this. They put it into four main buckets. The first primary factor as to why we are working more and more and we are more tired and more dissatisfied is because there's increasing competition. There is this belief in American culture that there are fewer and fewer, quote, good jobs. And so we are competing for the good job, which is why competition for elite education, which will equal more opportunity, is going through the roof. This is why Aunt Becky from Full House is going to go to prison. <laughs> there is a belief that there are fewer and fewer good jobs, and so we have to compete at a higher and higher level for, to get those jobs. And then there's the sense that once you get a good job with a good wage that makes you just even a little bit satisfied, that you should hustle really, really hard to keep that job, lest you get pushed out of it by someone who wants it more, or downsized because you don't perform. There is increased competition. The second, there's greater disparity between the very rich and the very poor in our United States. And that's just an economic fact. Uh, the, the people at the very top of the wage earning class, uh, they are making more than ever, and the people at the very bottom are earning less than ever, especially when it comes to what they make compared to rates of inflation. But it's coming at a cost for both. The number of hours a week that the very rich are working is going up. It's gone up 40% in the last handful of years. So there's an expectation that if you're among the top wage earners, that you will work at a baseline 80 to 90 hours a week. And when you complain about that cost on yourself in terms of time, there, you are quick to be reminded that that cost is what you pay to get paid so well. And if you are unwilling to pay that cost, there are a hundred other people behind you who are willing to take this job from you, so get to work. Likewise, at the so-called bottom of the wage earning scale, the money that was once being made doesn't go quite as far. And so by every metric, people are working more hours of overtime, more jobs, more side hustles just to make ends meet. So at both the very top and the very bottom, people are working more hours and the work week is expanding because of this disparity. Third thing we know is that technology has made our work ubiquitous, meaning it is everywhere all the time. And it's not just that your phone is constantly buzzing with emails from your boss who wants to send you an email at 2.30 in the morning that's going to bother you at 7.30 in the morning. That's true. But it's also because of social media. Even when you try to take a break from your hustle and your work and your labor, you are scrolling through your newsfeed and you're seeing somebody else's work, somebody else's hustle, somebody else's labor. You're seeing the highlight reel of somebody else's performance, and guess what it does? It makes you self-conscious about yours, and it makes you worry about your true freedom to take rest from your work. That's what technology does. And the fourth factor is secularism. We talked about this in week one. As the world becomes 
increasingly irreligious, we replace our God with our effort. We replace our faith on Sunday with our work Monday through Friday. There's an expectation that our work will begin to do for us what our faith in Jesus used to do for us. We use our work as a means of finding meaning and purpose and proving ourselves in this world, having a sense of, of place and belonging, of worth and well-being. We look to our work, our work to do for us what our faith used to do for us. So there's increased urgency on our work to accomplish deep things for us. And so when you take all these factors together, it is, it is no wonder that we work with such urgency and intensity and such frequency. Do you, in your work, whatever your work is, whether you're in the marketplace or in the home or in ministry, do you feel any of these factors in your work? Do you feel any of these pressures at all? I mean, I, I would be honest, I do. Now, the question is, what do we do about it? Because just because we know that we should rest doesn't mean we do. You know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know if you're here as a follower of Jesus. You know that there's a command to have a Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But that doesn't mean you do it. You know that you are tired. You know that you're probably working too much. You know that your boundaries are blurred, but it doesn't mean you stop. Just because we know that we should rest doesn't mean that we do. And that, by the way, is the essence of sin. If you're new to Christianity and you're wondering what sin is all about, it comes down to this. The things we know we should do that we fail to do. The things that God asks of us or offers to us that are rejected by us and rebelled against by us. That's what sin is. We know what's good for us, but we don't do it. Which, by the way, is the same attitude that my four-year-old son has all the time. I, 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 will, I will prepare dinner for him. And I know he's hungry. I know he's hungry because he's been asking for a snack for about an hour. And I know we're making his favorite meal, which is gourmet chicken strips. <laughs> and he knows that if he eats, he can jump right back into the Legos that he's left from to eat the meal. So I know he's hungry. He knows it's his favorite. And he knows that if he's called from the meal, he can go back to whatever he was doing before. Yet even though that's the case, when I say to him, hey, bud... Come to the table. It's time for dinner. He pretends not to hear me half the time. And then even when he does hear me, I'll say, but it's time for dinner. And if he's really into his Legos, he'll say, no, despite the fact that he's hungry, it's his favorite. And he knows he'll get to play again later. So the other day, I got exasperated with him, and I did the, like, the counting thing that doesn't work. You know, one, put the leg, put two, don't make me say three. And then I, I heard from the other room, I heard these words, good job, now do four. <laughs> Gets that from his mother. <laughs> Just because we know what we should do, it, it doesn't mean that we do it. So, so I don't think this is a matter of you knowing that you need rest and that I need rest from my labors. I think this comes down to our ability and our willingness to wrap our hearts and minds around two truths. Two truths. And the two truths that we struggle to wrap our hearts and minds around are this. Number one, if I don't work, God will continue to work. God will not stop if I stop. And the second one, God's love will not relent if I rest. We struggle to believe that. That God will not stop if I stop. 
And God's love will not relent if I rest. Now, let me explain those two things. We, by virtue of our sinfulness and our, our desire to worship ourselves, which is another big part of sin, we tend to think of ourselves as like completely indispensable. We tend to think of ourselves as the essential cog in the whole system, that if, that if we check out for just a moment, things will probably fall apart and be irreparable. We tend to think that if we stop, the whole thing stops. We like to think of, of our work and our family as, as like this house of cards. It's, it's really hard to build, but it's very easy to destroy. And you, you just happen to be the most important card in the entire structure. And if you are removed from it, oh, the whole thing might just fall apart. If I stop working, the whole thing stops working. But what did we learn in week one? Do you remember? We, we learned that all work is of God, meaning it's all part of this system that he's put in place. Even the most mundane of tasks, it's part of this system he's put in place through which he protects the world and provides for the world and answers the prayers and meets the needs of the world. And that your job, whatever it is in the marketplace, in the home, in ministry, is this mask that God wears behind which he is working and through which he is providing. So what does that mean? It means that the essential element in your work is not you. You're critical, but you're not absolutely essential. The essential element in your work is your God who gave that job to you, who works through you in that job, and who will continue to work if you do what he's commanded, which is rest. The world, which is God's, will work even when you do what God commands, which is to rest. Likewise, we, we are so quick to find our worth and our well-being in our work. And yet, what does Jesus say to us? We are so quick to think that, that, if, that if I'm not doing, somehow I'm dying, and so I have to keep plugging away. We, we are quick to think that we have to build up our resume, not so that we can get a good job, but we try to build up our resume and just keep working because we're trying to prove to ourselves and to others that we're a good person. Look how good I am. I keep going. Look how faithful I am. I keep churning. Look how hardworking I am. Am I lovable yet? And, and that's the lie that we believe. I'll tell you what, it's the lie that I believe, that the harder I work, the more lovable I am. That the more I produce, the more valuable I am. I struggle to believe that if I don't do, I'm still loved. And yet what God tells us is that God's love will not relent if you rest. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this, starting in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor, all who work, and are heavy laden, and I will give you a to-do list. Wait, sorry. I will give you what? Another word for rest is Sabbath. I will give you Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, I'm different. I am totally different than everything else. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find Sabbath for your souls. What's another way of saying that? Jesus is saying you are loved apart from your labor. You are loved apart from your labor. For me, and I'm going to bet for you, your unwillingness to find balance, your unwillingness to stop, is not because you don't know that you should. It's because you struggle like me to wrap your heart and your mind around those truths. That if I stop, God won't, so it's all good. 
And if I relent from my labor, I'm still loved, so I'm fine. Now, now the question you are probably asking is, okay, well, then how do I wrap my heart and mind around those truths? Or, Matt, how do I wrap my husband's heart and mind around those truths? Well, I'll tell you this. I'm a firm believer that hearts only change one way. That hearts change when habits change. That if you wait for your your heart to get to the right place first, you, you will never change what you do. But, but I believe that we're wired like this, that, that our heart follows our hands and not the other way around. That, that what our hands start to do, our heart and mind starts to believe. And so, and so if you want to believe that you are free to rest from your labors, the way to believe that more deeply is to rest from your labors and to see what happens. I see this truth played out all the time, like when I do marriage counseling. A couple will come into my office and they'll sit down and they'll say, we, we are just lacking in love for each other. We, we, we're not feeling it anymore. What do we do? What I don't say to them is, well, just give us some time. It'll come back. What I don't say is, read a book and you'll figure it out. Although I do recommend books. But here's the number one thing I recommend. If you're not feeling loving, the only prescription is this. No matter what you feel, no matter what the other person does, you have to make a concerted effort to do what loving people do. And I will tell you what, if the two of you, for a focused amount of time, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what the other person offers you, if you choose to do for the other the loving, sacrificial, generous thing consistently over a course of time, I bet, I guarantee that your heart, at least in some small way, will start to tremble, start to twake, and start to change. It always does. Our hearts follow our hands. They do. And the same is true when it comes to believing the truths of God. And so if you want to believe that you're free to rest, find some freedom to rest. If you want to believe that you can pause from your work, the only way to start to believe that truth is to pause from your work as hard as it is. So so practically speaking, it may kill you. It may feel like death and dying to not respond to emails on Saturday or not to open up your laptop. But the only way to... To believe that you're free is to hand those things to your spouse and to tell her, to tell him to lock them up for the weekend. It's the only way it's going to happen. Only way. I know it kills you to bow out of an important meeting or to miss a sales call that for some reason got scheduled at 8 o'clock at night. I know it kills you to disappoint your boss like that. But you will have to disappoint your boss so that you can sit on the couch with your spouse and watch The Bachelor with your wife and figure out who gets the stupid rose. (laughs) I understand. I, chief of sinners, I understand that it feels like dying to be doing nothing. But there has to be a moment where nothing on your to-do list gets checked off and you are simply present with the people who matter most. You do those things, and then you watch, even as you're dying inside. You do those things, and then you watch. You open up your eye, and you realize, I'm dying inside, but no one's died. I'm not doing, and yet no one's died. And likewise, the the work that I thought I had to do today is, is waiting for me tomorrow. Huh. And even though my, my boss got mad at me and the sale didn't come through for me, 
The God who's commanded this rest for me has protected and provided for me and cared for me. You practice it. You see the fruit of it. And your heart begins to believe it. That's how this works. That's how this works. There's a couple of verses that have been instructive to me in this journey that I share with you. They seem really obscure. I get it. We read them earlier, but I want to just read them again to you. The first is from Leviticus. This is, this is Old Testament rules for farming. It'll make sense in a second, I promise. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the traveler. I'm the Lord your God. And then from Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Uh, The notion of rest is is so embedded into ancient Israelite life that that it's reflected in, in the rules that were given to them for their farming. At harvest time, God says, you are to harvest everything except a margin around the edge of your field. You're to leave about a three-foot-wide strip of, of unharvested produce around the edge of your field, and you're to leave it alone. It's to be left for other people. Leave a little bit of what's yours for others. And then, he says in Ecclesiastes, that, that it is pointless for you to work and to work and to work, but to never enjoy any of the things that God has given you. And, and there are countless other verses that, that build on these two truths, but the two truths that come out of this for me are, 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 are this. Um, you should work in such a way that there's some of you, your time, your talent, your treasure, left over for others. And you should work in such a way that you're able to actually take some time to enjoy the things that you've worked for. So so for me, Sabbath and rest means this. It it means that there is some of me, some of me left over for the people that find me irreplaceable. For the things that I find enjoyable. And for the God who makes it all possible. There is some of me left over, my time, my energy, my attention, for the people that find me irreplaceable, the things that I find enjoyable, and the God who makes it all possible. So, so practically speaking, in my life, when it's working well, and it's not always working well, but when it's working well, it, it looks like this, that there are, there's two hours every week where I get to go for a run and then a walk with my wife, and there's no kids around. So awesome. And then there's one night a week where I get to sit on the patio and read a book by myself. Not for long, just like an hour, hour and a half. That's all I need. And then every morning I, I open up my journal and I, and I copy down the words of a psalm, an entire psalm. I copy down those words of a psalm in my, in, in my journal. And so for me, that's time with the ones who are irreplaceable. And it's time doing the things I find enjoyable and, and time with the one who makes it all possible. What, what would it look like for you? Those three things. And I recognize there are seasons in life where, where this is quite literally not possible. Where you have small children, and, and there's no such thing as five minutes to yourself unless you lock yourself in the bathroom, and even then there's little hands coming in the door like this. I get that. Or you're taking care of, uh, of an aging parent, or, or, or you're, you're in a season of work where you know, you know you have, you can't say no unless you lose your job. I get that. But that's where people, 
from the church can come in and they can be a source of accountability to you so that that season remains a season and it doesn't become a lifetime for you. It's also where people can assist you to try and help you find some margin. If you're working, at, if, you're, if you're that stretched, don't do it alone. Let somebody else know so we might be able to hold you accountable or help you out in some regard. But friends, I share this all with you because, because some of you need to be warned that if you don't start to value rest from your labors in your life, it, it will come at a cost that you're not willing to pay. It will come at a cost physically or spiritually, relationally, that you really don't want to pay. All the warning signs are there for some of you. Your spirituality is dead and dry and feeling duh. The people that are irreplaceable to you, they, they, are, they are constantly asking for more of you. Or worse yet, they've stopped asking because they don't believe it will ever happen. And, and the sins and the struggles that you, that you really wrestle with, they're, they're bubbling up to the surface more and more and more because that's what happens when we're lonely and we're really tired. All the warning signs are there for you, and I share this with you so that you might heed those warning signs and see them as a gift of God. Uh, Lisa and I have been watching this, um, this dramatized documentary uh, about Chernobyl, the 1986 nuclear accident that happened. And what was interesting to me is that the whole thing can ultimately be attributed to two, two electrical engineers who decided to play around with the system. They decided to test the limits of the system, and they, they manually overrode six different alarm systems. They tried to press the system further and further to see how much strain it could take. And at six different points, they had to manually override the alarm systems. The, the dashboard in Chernobyl lit up red and said, stop, go no further. But they said, no, we'll keep going, disregard, manual override. No, we'll keep going, disregard, manual override. No, we'll keep going, disregard, manual override. Six times, and then eventually, a total meltdown happened. Some of you, you have harvested your field to the absolute edge. There is nothing left over, and all of the warning signs are there, and you think you're the exception to the rule. You think that you can push the warning to the side and just keep going. But what God wants for you is for you to avoid an absolute and total meltdown. You can cease from your work Because Jesus Christ has already earned your worth, secured your place, and made you whole. I'll close with this. There is a, a book written called Five Regrets of the Dying, which I highly suggest. It's available on Amazon, written by a woman named Bronnie Ware, Five Regrets of the Dying. She was a hospice nurse in Australia for many years, and as she assisted people in the final stages of their life, she asked them one question. What is your greatest regret? She asked this of hundreds and hundreds of patients, and then she compiled her findings into this book, Five Regrets of the Dying, which is just fascinating. What was interesting to me, she said, is that there was one regret that was mentioned by every single man she ever asked the question of. Same, same answer they gave. And it was the number two stated regret of every person that she talked to. You know what that regret was? I wish I had worked Less. Notice no one ever says more. Because we know. I wish I'd worked less, or as she puts it, she says they wish they had spent less, spent less of their life on the treadmill of work. 
and spent more of their life focused on the people that are irreplaceable, the things that are enjoyable, and if they're a person of faith, the God who makes it all possible. The greatest regret of many in their last day is that they spent too much time working and they didn't rest. Now again, rewind with me to the beginning of all things. God makes the world. Before any of us are made, God makes the world and he makes a command. What's his command? To rest. In the beginning, God says, rest. What's most of ours greatest regret going to be in the end? That we did not what? Rest. Before you were even born, God knew what your greatest regret very likely would be. That you did not rest. And so what does he do? From the moment the world is made, he commands it for you. That is grace. You've got to love a God who commands a day off, so make it. Take it. You are free to make margin, not because it's easy, but because it's, it's necessary. It's faithful because it will bless you in your own life. Your spirituality, your relationships, your physical well-being, it will bless all those things. You are free because Jesus has already given you everything that you already need. And you are free, you are free because, friends, there is more to Mondays. There is more to Mondays than building up regret for your final day. Let's pray.